Friends, let's open in our Bible to Titus chapter 2. We're going to continue our series in the pastoral epistles in Titus chapter 2. Ain't no shame in the table of contents to find Titus. I would tell you that it's after First and Second Timothy, which we just studied, but that didn't help if you don't know where those are. Um, But we're in Titus chapter 2, and I'm going to read the last uh, five verses of this chapter. Hear now God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's a sense in which we find ourselves caught in the limbo between two appearances. You appeared in your incarnation, you lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and now we wait for your second appearance in glory when you will come and unite us to yourselves in a new heavens and a new earth. It's hard to make sense of the time between the appearances. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning from your word. I pray that you would give your spirit liberally to empower us to do the things we hear. I pray that you would train us in grace. And I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now we read these verses and they really appear first and foremost to us as really a dense, concise statement of theology. And they are, but there's more than meets the eye. This passage landed on its first hearers very differently than it lands on us because Paul is using the brilliant missionary art of subversion. Paul is using this passage to subvert the story that the Cretans, that who this letter is addressed to ultimately behind Titus, are going to hear. Now, subversion is simply to connect to another person's story and then to show how that story is really fulfilled in a place different than what they were originally thinking. That's what subversion is. And so this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about how subversion works how Paul specifically subverts the Cretan story. And then finally, we're going to look at this story that he tells and understand what is this subversive story. We're going to do all three of those things this morning. Let's start by talking about how subversion works. Now, I think to use, to throw around that word subversive, subversion, that can have a negative connotation. And it should if by it we mean to mislead somebody or to trick somebody. That does have a negative connotation. That's a bad kind of subversion. But subversion is good if you mean to influence somebody positively. If you mean to influence somebody towards what is right and good and true, then subversion in that case is a wonderful element of rhetoric. I saw a perfect example of good subversion in an anti-drug ad. There was an ad where it was a video, but it was basically just uh, pictures and and a clip of pictures of this young girl. She was a high school girl, beautiful, talented, looked great, middle class, everything going for her. And you realize as you're flipping through the pictures that you're watching her slow descent into a meth addiction. 
And over time, you watch her cheeks begin to hollow out. You see her lose hair. She has open sores on her face. And it's really just a heartbreaking video to watch just the pain of what this drug addiction can do. Now, here's what's so brilliant about subversion and using a story like that to subvert. If you were to bring that final image of a hardened meth user into a high school classroom and you showed it to a bunch of kids and said, look, kids, this is what could happen if you use meth, nobody connects with that. Everybody looks at an image like that, and it is so foreign and and distant and gross and off-putting that no one can imagine that that can be themselves, right? Well, that's where subversion comes in. You come in and you bring a picture of somebody who looks exactly like you, who is thinking about taking meth or starting to use meth, and they feel great and they look great, and you say, this is where this story goes. You think it's going to go this way, but it really goes this way. That, that's subversion at its best. That's influencing somebody for what's good and right and true. And we, we have many, many opportunities to use subversion in a good and gospel way. In fact, in the last two weeks, John Pauling, our associate pastor, and myself, we were both asked by non-Christians, what exactly does a pastor do? Have you ever wondered that? You see them on Sunday morning, and then you're like too afraid to ask, what do you do all week? I heard one guy explain his pastor as, this man is invisible six days a week and incomprehensible the seventh. (laughs) I thought that is so great. But if someone told that to me, I'd probably cry. Um, So John and I each get asked this, and we get asked this by non-Christians, people who, who, who are not believers, and one of us had a really awesome answer to that question. I got asked a couple of weeks ago by a couple, and I sensed in the way that they were asking that they were really asking, do you work all week? Like, are you gainfully employed? Do you do anything all week? And when I hear that, I I, I can feel like the anxiety growing in me to defend myself and say, I really do have a hard job. I really work hard. And so I just kind of spit out an answer to defend myself. And I said, of course, I work all week. I do tons of stuff. We have a staff. We have a church budget. We have Sunday morning worship that I prepare for. I'm in meetings all week. I do tons of stuff. Now, that is a terrible, terrible answer for what a pastor does. I, I don't believe in any of that. I stand diametrically opposed to that. Um, it was a way to connect with these people, but it was a total missed opportunity because I wasn't able to explain what I care most deeply about as a pastor. Well, transport yourself to John's conversation, and John is in a conversation where a group of people say, what do you do? A pastor, that's interesting. We've never really met a pastor. Tell us what you do. And here's what John says. John says, you know, there's a lot of darkness in the world. There's a lot of pain and hurt and injustice and sin. And as a pastor, I spend a lot of my time camping out there and pointing people to the hope we have in Jesus. Isn't that a fantastic answer? I wish that I had heard John's answer and kind of prepped for my own, but now I know. Um, but, But that is subversion at its best, right? Because you draw somebody in by saying, here's where I camp out. You know the dark places? You know the hurting places? You know places where there's injustice and pain? And immediately, it doesn't matter what faith background you have or what worldview you have, all of us know that the world is a dark place and there's darkness in it. But here's the plot twist. That's exactly where the pastor finds himself because that's exactly where Jesus is. Isn't that beautiful? That's subversion at its best to point people to the glory of the gospel. 
That's kind of how subversion works. But how is Paul actually applying this idea to the Cretans? How is he using subversion? I've read these verses tons of times, and I've never really understood this because I'm a secondary hearer. This letter is going to Titus, and then it's going to go to Crete, and then it lands on me 2,000 years later, and I miss some of the nuances here because I don't know the language that the Cretans used. Well, John, when he introduced the letter of Titus, he gave us some of this background, and it's important for us to revisit that so that we can see what Paul is doing. The, the Cretans, the people on the island of Crete to whom Titus is ministering to, they believed in the Greek god Zeus. They believed that, that Zeus was born as a man on the island of Crete, that he was made into a god, that he lived a more or less virtuous life, and that he died and was buried on the island of Crete. That's what they believed. Now watch this. This is so fascinating. Cretans believed that Zeus was virtuous, self-controlled, godly, and upright. Do you remember some of those ethical terms from last week earlier in chapter 2 and you heard them again later in chapter 2? Paul is using that same language. The Cretans called their Greek god Zeus a savior and they said that Zeus would appear from time to time to extend his grace to his people, to give them gracious gifts that he would bestow upon them. So that's the worldview, that's the religion, that's the philosophy of these people in Crete. And along comes the missionary Paul, and he is thinking to himself, how do I introduce the Christian faith? There is so much to tell from the creation of the world to the fall of man, to the election of Israel, to God's providence and salvation, to the coming of Jesus, to the second coming of Jesus. Where on earth do you begin And the missionary challenge with a neighbor, a friend, a co-worker, an unreached island of Crete is to say, this is where we're going to start. Now Paul, interestingly, talks about the appearing of the grace of God. And by that, in verse 11, he means that Jesus has come, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose again from the dead. But he doesn't talk about the incarnation. And I think the reason he encapsulates the incarnation by just saying the grace of God has appeared is because if you think about it, the incarnation would be really, really confusing for people on the island of Crete, right? If if they're telling themselves the story about a man-made God who lived and died on this island, and you come and tell them about the incarnation, God made man born in Bethlehem who died in Jerusalem, that would be very confusing at best, and at worst, it would just get absorbed into the religion of the Cretans. And so Paul, even though he believes wholeheartedly in the incarnation, he knows its historicity, he believes it is theologically precise, he doesn't say a word about it here because that's just not the best place to introduce these people to what the gospel is. He's choosing a way to speak to them in in a sense that they understand. So in a worldview of a people who celebrate a God who is savior and virtuous and appears to show gracious gifts to his people, Paul starts the Christian story in verse 11 connecting to their worldview. He says, For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's Paul the missionary's way of saying, when you talk about a God who's a savior, when you talk about a God who appears to his people, when you talk about a God who is gracious, You're right. Let me tell you more about that one true God. Isn't that a brilliant way to to take a story that's already being told and to subvert it, 
to turn it, to influence it towards the one true gospel. I think as we read and understand this stuff in our Bibles, it has huge import for us today in our evangelism. How are we in our community, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, who we go to school with, subverting the stories of our neighbors and not trying to cram a new one down their throat? How do we do that well? Let me start by giving what can be a bad example. I'm treading on on thin ice here when I say this, but I think what can be a bad example today of a way to, to bring the Christian story into our context is to start with the Ten Commandments. A lot of times I think that's a bad place to start. Now we have a thrift store that's a couple of blocks from our house and posted out front of the thrift store on a very busy road are the Ten Commandments. They're there for everybody to see. And actually, they're affixed to a Walmart shopping cart. So it's not exactly clear to me who stole the Walmart cart to affix the Ten Commandments to, but there it is for all to see. Um, But I fail to see the evangelistic strategy in our culture for posting the Ten Commandments. Now, I realize that there are places in postmodern America where introducing the Ten Commandments and an absolute moral law works like it did in modern America, that that can become common language for people to use, and that can be a way to share the gospel. It does happen. What I'm saying is, by and large, in postmodernity, the idea of an absolute moral law and the idea of the Ten Commandments being delivered on Sinai is so outrageous I fear it's a conversation stopper. If you want to take somebody and show them the glories of Jesus, but you can't get past explaining the historicity of the Ten Commandments, I think you've lost in that conversation. I think that hasn't been helpful. Now hear me. I believe in the Ten Commandments. I believe in the historicity of Sinai, that God literally gave the Decalogue to Moses, and that it has import today that every single human being, no matter what we believe, is held accountable to the perfect, holy, righteous law of God. What I'm saying is, is that the best place to start a gospel conversation with your neighbor? Is that the first thing we want to tell them about who God is within their culture? In my mind, that's like approaching a girl in the cafeteria and saying, hey, baby, you're my second choice of girls to hit on today. I mean, that might be true, but that's just a bad place to start. I know it's a bad illustration of a bad place to start, but that's not where you want to go. Meanwhile, speaking of subverting American stories, do you know what the number one hit song in America is right now? that's just flying off the billboard charts. It's Wiz Khalifa's See You Again. Anybody heard that song? I don't know Wiz. I don't know anything about him. We have one person who has heard his song. Thank you. Um, But the song is See You Again. It's about a deceased friend, and the chorus says, It's been a long day without you, friend, and I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. Now let me get this straight. Here we are standing on the sunny side of Easter and the billboard charts are dripping with this innate human hope that resurrections really do happen, that this life is not all that there is, that when we die there is a chance that we will see people again. Friends, I wonder if there's a way to connect that to the Christian story. There is. Now, by that, I don't mean when you're driving in the car with a non-Christian friend and you're rocking out to Wiz Khalifa, you turn down the radio and say, let me tell you how resurrections really happen. That's subversion, but you're kind of missing the subtlety in all of this. 
But if you understand that this is the story that Americans are telling themselves, that there is this hope within all of us that we were made for more than this, that there's got to be more than the 20 or 30 or 60 or 80 or 90 years I live on this earth, and you know that that's being rehashed in people's minds and on people's radios, that means any time that we as believers speak about the afterlife, we speak into that story. Anytime we as believers prioritize the life to come over this life, we connect to that story. Anytime we, we count it more to be a citizen of heaven than a citizen of earth, anytime we lose a loved one and we grieve but not as the world does, we tap into a story that Americans are telling themselves again and again and again. Maybe, just maybe, resurrections happen. That's subversion at its best. I don't want us to overthink this. I don't want us to make this complicated. The joy in this is that the Christian story meets a person where they are. If my neighbor is afraid, the gospel speaks to that. If my coworker wants nothing in life but to be wealthy and to grow in his position, the gospel speaks to that. If I know a mom who's tearing her hair out because her kids are driving her crazy, the gospel speaks to that. The gospel plays 10,000 ways and we as believers have an ability to connect with any single human being's story because they were made to know the one true God. Let's think as a church what it looks like to subvert and to subvert well so that we can tell the good news of the gospel story. What is the story that Paul is actually telling? Now that we've seen how subversion works, now that we've watched him use language that's familiar to the Grecians to to get his message across, what's the message that he's telling Titus and telling this young church of believers? Well, over and against the Cretan story of Zeus, Paul tells this story that starts in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Now, we said when he says the appearance of the grace of God, he means the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that has happened. That's the grace of God that has appeared to do what? What is the grace of God appearing to do in verse 11? It's to train us. Isn't that interesting to talk about a grace that trains? God's grace appears so that it can train us. I think some of us are so careful to keep a line between the grace of God and good works of the law. That is, we want to understand that the reason God saves us is not because we're good people that obey the law, but because we have nothing and Jesus has found us and he has saved us and he showed us his grace. Because we want to delineate that in how we come to faith, oftentimes we can have this kind of working definition of grace that it's an entity that just leaves us alone, right? Jesus paid it all. He's done everything. He, he receives me with all my rough edges and my warts, and he draws me into his kingdom, and, and I'm free to be who I am in him. That's, that's kind of a functional way to define grace as an entity that just leaves us alone. Now, it's true that Jesus receives us exactly as we are in all of our sin and all of our warts and all of our rough edges, But a grace that leaves us like that is really no grace at all. Instead, over and against that, God's grace appears to train us to do three things that we're going to look at very briefly. To renounce, to live, 
and to hope. That's what the appearing of the grace of God is going to train us to do. The first two, to renounce and to live, are in verse 12. To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Secondly, to live, verse 12 again, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So this dual ethic that Paul is talking about, we renounce and then we live. We say no to unrighteousness so that we can say yes to righteousness. This is absolutely everywhere in the Apostle Paul. You see this dual ethic all over the place. Romans chapter 6, we die to sin so that we can live to God. We stop presenting our members, our hands and feet to unrighteousness so that we can start using them as tools for righteousness. Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, we take off the old self so that we can put on the new self that's being renewed by Christ. Galatians 5, we stop indulging the desires of our flesh so that we can indulge the desires of the Holy Spirit within us. 2 Timothy 2.2, we flee youthful lusts so that we can pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Getting the idea of to renounce and to live really captures what we mean by biblical repentance. When we repent before God, we come to a place in our lives where we confess, God, you are right and I am not. What I am doing is wrong and it's sin. And I confess that to you and I repent and I turn from that. Now, oftentimes this is where we get stalled in the two-step dance of repentance because we confess something, but we don't turn and live towards righteousness and we imagine ourselves standing in a no-man's land. There's no such thing. You're either running towards youthful lusts or you're running towards righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And so biblical repentance is turning from one to the other, leaving one and putting it down and running towards and following after the other. And it happens in a Christian's life every single day, every single hour, every single moment that we are cognizant of the one true God who stands before us. We repent and we turn and we follow. All of this is a grace. All of this is the grace of God which falls on us and trains us and shapes us to be different people. When you see a woman in the Holy Spirit who used to be so critical of other people, she gossiped, she put other people down, now more and more change and be gracious and speak well of other people when they're not in the room, When you see a man who has always had a fierce temper, but now by the power of God, you see glimpses of of patience and kindness in him, who among us says, wow, that person is so caught up in moralism, they just don't get the grace of God. Who would say that? If I see that dad be tender to his child one more time, I'm just going to scream for the legalism of all of it. We wouldn't think to say that because we see in those moments This is grace. It's the grace of God that trains us and changes us. It's a grace that hurts. It's a grace that prunes. It's a grace that often feels more like dying and putting off and fleeing than it does actually going anywhere. But it's grace. It's all grace. And when we see that in another person, we cry, Lord, do that to me. Don't spend so much time on my brother or sister that I get the short end of the sanctification stick change me and shape me. I want to be different in you. All of that is a grace. God's grace is doing that. 
He's calling us to renounce and to live and finally to hope. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And look what Jesus has already achieved in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Did you catch that? We just talked about God's grace appearing to us to renounce ungodliness and to live towards godliness. Now we read in verse 14 that this is what Jesus achieves in the gospel. He redeems us from ungodliness and he creates us a people for godliness. Watch how the gospel works in the Trinity. The Father asks you to do the very thing that the Son has achieved and that the Spirit is actively working. This is something that God in his Trinity fullness applies to you and draws you into. And so we can say with full confidence in the gospel to one another, Christian, die to sin. Die to it. Take it off. Run from it. Prune it. Get away from it. Die to sin. Because Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Now, Christian, live to righteousness. Allow the Spirit to work it and grow it. Foster it in your life. Challenge yourself in these things because Jesus purifies himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray together. Father, even as Christians, I pray you would crash into the stories we've been telling ourselves all week and give us this story. that The grace of God has appeared to train us to renounce, to live, and to hope. We want to be people who look like your son, and we need you to apply this gospel to us. Would you do this in us more and more, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.